The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 4, 7-11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome again to Sacred City Church. We are thankful that you are worshiping with us this morning. Uh, I am Alex Arguello, one of the new pastors here at Sacred City and part-time preachers. Um, And it's an honor today to be bringing the word of God to you this morning. Uh, We have a lot to get into today, and I couldn't think of anything funny like I usually try to start with. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in. Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, I thank you for, for not only this morning, but Just for this past week, um, as I started to prepare the sermon last Sunday, which is the the longest that I took ever to start preparing for for one of these, and um, I just felt this deep inadequacy um, to be able to do that, to be able to have something for today. Um, So I pray that your spirit would come. I pray that your spirit would think through my mind and that it would type the words on the the computer, and you did that. Um, I believe that you answered that prayer. I believe that you typed through me. I also believe that you deleted through me. Um, and I typed again, and, and you deleted some more of it. And uh, I think what we have here today um, is from you. So I ask you now, would come again today, Holy Spirit, and, and now speak through me. Um, even as Peter just called us to, one who speaks, that you would speak the very words of God. May I do that today. May I do that with a humble confidence today. Um, but we also need you um, as listeners to anoint our ears, to hear, to anoint our minds, to think, and to anoint our hearts to receive. So we pray that you would do that for us today as we hear your word preached, and ultimately that that would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, of course, is the first Sunday of 2018. So it's a time when people really take some time to just think about where their life is at. And if anything needs to change, change for improvement is really just natural for human beings. Some many psychologists and self-help gurus suggest that there are some basic needs that every humans have. A couple of those are variety. We naturally get bored with doing the same thing over and over again, or even being the same type of person. Another one is growth. We naturally desire improvement moving forward. So desire for change is built in us. It was something that we were created with. So this time of year, goals are set, resolutions are made, and motivation to change is high. Now, many churches even take part in this and come up with some sort of sermon series based on New Year's resolutions or some other catchy type of sermon series. And if you're new here, you may be expecting that today, but I can tell you that is not what we are going to be doing today. It's not that all of that is bad or actually focusing on change and growth is wrong, Change is actually very good. It's really what God wants to do with everyone. He loves to take broken, sinful people and change them, transform them into people who are holy. 
It's a process called sanctification, what we sang about this morning, this maturation process of his children. So yes and amen to change from the new year for everyone in this room. That's even what this Sunday service is partially about, the edification of the body. But we believe that the best way for a sermon to trigger change in someone's life is to preach a sermon verse by verse, expositionally through the word of God. So to start 2018, we're not doing some sort of special series. We're just jumping right back into 1 Peter, which is the book that we were preaching through before taking a break for the Advent season. We started back in August, and the last sermon that was preached in this study was in late November. I highly recommend, if you missed that, to go back and listen to those, or if you just need to remember what Peter has been teaching us already. You can find those on our website, but because it has been so long since we've been studying this together, I have to spend some of our time today catching us up and what Peter has already been sharing with us. I'll try to be brief with that. If you remember, we titled this study Life in Exile. We did that because Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of Jesus' first disciples and primary leaders that he left to the church, wrote this letter back in the first century to Christians who were suffering persecution because of not only their beliefs, but, and this is important, because of the way they were living out those beliefs. Why is that important to make that distinction? Well, I think it's important because it's good for us to see that the Christian life is not just about believing something, but it's about being someone. Someone who has been changed by God and now lives life with new beliefs, and if those beliefs are actually real, they will produce a different person, a person that acts differently than before. That was the case with these people that Peter wrote to. This letter is evidence that God had really changed these people and that they were actually living the way God wanted them to. What we also learned from this letter is that when they started to live in this way God had wanted them to, everything was roses and rainbows, right? They were completely devoid of any suffering and it was just this grand utopia. No, when they started living the way God wanted them to, non-believers or who Peter calls Gentiles, we're noticing this and not liking it, hating it, actually. <clears throat> what was happening is when they started to live this life, they were being rejected, they were being ridiculed, they were being persecuted. None of those things are anywhere close to enjoyable. So these believers were like, man, what do we do with this? This is a tough life to live. I love Jesus, but this suffering thing is very tough. It stinks. And I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life. So Peter writes to them to encourage them, to exhort them, to call them to persevere in this new life as an exile, as someone who's not a citizen in this world, but was a citizen in a new world that's coming and reminds them of the power that fuels this way of living. We've been through three chapters of this book and are coming to the end of the body of this letter. And as we come to verses 7 through 11, we have to remember where we're coming from, which of course is verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. This was the last sermon preached, and Pastor Justin dove into how these people that Peter is writing to were once unbelievers, which meant that they, the way that they were living looked very much like the lives of the people who were now persecuting them. In these verses, Peter even got specific with how they were living. In verse 3, he lists them out living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
But once these people were born again and given God's spirit, they repented and believed the gospel, there were changes that needed to happen. They couldn't live this way any longer. So we learned a couple important things about Jesus that I want to remind us of. Number one, he came to save sinners. Not to be a good teacher for people or give people some extra power so that they could save themselves. That's not why he came. He came to save the lost. That's what these people were. He came to save the broken, those searching for something to fill this deep hole in their heart that nothing else they found could ever fill. I hope that is helpful for anyone here this morning that is still lost, that still needs hope. Jesus came for you. Number two, saving those sinners was not just about forgiving them of their sins so that they could get to heaven one day, but it was about remodeling them, changing them into people that for the rest of their life here on earth, in the flesh, would no longer live for their human passions, but for the will of God. How I would summarize that is by saying Jesus wants disciples. He wants people who are going to abstain from their over-desires, even if that means suffering. But not only that, he also wants people who are going to live according to God's will. Today, we get a picture of that from Peter. Now, I'm not saying that everything that goes into living a life according to God's will is right here in these verses, but we do see four important pieces Four important pieces of what God's will is for the Christian. Long intro, I know, but hopefully we are caught up now and know where we are going. We are going to see what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I hope it can be good news for us today. Now, it might be some of our tendencies to hear verses that were read today. And hear me just explain that that is the way to live according, according to God's will, but then maybe expect some moralistic message which has a goal of making you feel guilty or ashamed and then calls you to just go live better. That's not what our desire is today. It's also not our desire to just give you a message like here's some things that you really should be doing, but you're a sinner, you know, so cut yourself some slack and always remember that Jesus loves you. There are some half-truths in both of those types of sermons, but they would be missing a very important piece, the gospel message. Gospel means good news, And part of that good news is that Jesus does love us. But in order for that to affect us and really produce change in our lives, we do have to believe that there was bad news first. Just like that song we sang this morning, amazing song, right? For mercy to be good news for us, we actually have to believe that we need mercy. We have to believe that we are sinners. So that bad news is that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And since we sin, we are dead in our trespasses and the wrath of God is coming for us. If that is not your belief, then the message of the gospel isn't very compelling to you. In fact, you might consider it foolishness and not think that what Jesus did was even necessary. What's interesting to me is there are people that haven't, even though they haven't really thought actually very deeply about what I just went through, something still pushes them to claim Christianity. It might be that they grew up in church or they, or they just like the community feel of a church. It might be that they think that becoming part of a church will just make them a better person. Some even think that claiming Christianity is a great way to have your best life now, health, wealth, and happiness. 
I used to be one of those people. Church was part of my life because for sure some of those things, but maybe even all of those things. It wasn't until I really understood that for the gospel to be good news for me, I had to believe the bad news first. This bad news is really what made the gospel beautiful to me. Now, I think many Christians get there. Many, many churches even make that their primary focus, sharing the gospel and calling people to respond and be converted to Christianity. That's great. Praise God for that. But one of the main reasons that I am thankful for Sacred City Church is because we don't just stop there. The primary thing, you've heard about it already this morning, we want to do here is make disciples, which happens through this lifelong process that God's chosen people go through. Something that is underneath how we do that is what we call our DNA. It's explained in three terms, gospel, community, and mission. You maybe have heard it said around here that the only way Disciples are made is by people living in community and on mission centered on the gospel. I think through this letter, Peter has been confirming that this belief is supported in scripture, but I think today we see it maybe more clearly than we have before. So for those of you that are currently living in an MC, living in a missional community, I want to encourage you that much of what Peter calls us to in these verses that we're going to read is already built into MC life. Not that structure gives the power to be able to live this way, but it can be an important piece. My hope is as we hear this life that we're supposed to live, that we can be encouraged that you are part of a church that is striving for this already. So if you have Bibles, please open them up. If you don't, there should be some in the aisles. We're going to start looking at verse 7 together. Verse 7 starts with, the end of all things is at hand. This phrase is interesting. And at first look, it seems like Peter's saying that he thought that the end of the world was coming soon. But we are 2,000 years removed from this letter. And the end hasn't happened yet. So he must have meant something else. What he means in this phrase is not that a chronological end is at hand. But theologically, the end is at hand. Meaning in God's story that we see throughout scripture, which can be summarized in four big categories, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Theologically speaking, redemption has happened. The Messiah has come. What God's people since the fall described in Genesis 3 have been waiting for, God has done. So this means we are in the last phase of history. All that's left is for Jesus to return and consummate his kingdom. So what? Why does Peter think that's important to say here? I do think we could see a missional piece to this, right? If there's only one piece left of the story, who knows when that's going to happen? So there might not be very much time in your life for people in your life to respond to the gospel. And we've seen back in chapter two, if we remember that Peter wanted Christians to live in the way God, according to God's will, because some of the people that would look in and see that and come to faith. So that's probably partially behind these exhortations. But as we will see, this is in the context of community. He says one another a few different times. So I think what he wants to do by saying this is as he's done throughout the letter, remind them of an indicative 
before giving them imperatives. Remind them of what God has already done before telling them what they have to go and do. To translate this phrase, a more familiar terminology for us, he's saying, remember the gospel. Not just the work that was done, of course, that is important, but remember the implications of that work. Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension changed the world. And for people that have been born again, been made new creations, as these people were, that consummation thing, where everything will be made right, where we will rule and reign with Jesus forever, where we will receive the imperishable inheritance, that's all yours. It's guaranteed. It's not yet fully here, but in a sense, it is here. It's a done deal in God's plan. And he is in complete control and can be trusted. So fix your mind on that truth is what Peter is saying. But we see as we continue, the next word is therefore. So we know that that imperative is coming. There's something that we have to do. And this also means that there's something more to his initial words. He's saying, remember the gospel, but we have to remember something about the gospel in order to fully grasp this. And this piece of the gospel most likely hasn't entered the mind of the new convert that I was referring to before that doesn't live life in a missional community that just attends a Sunday service or worse, stays home and listens to podcast preachers or worse than that, doesn't do any of that, but still claims Christianity. This piece that I'm talking about is what Pastor Bob Thune, that some of you are familiar with, what he loves to say, which is the gospel changes everything. It changes everything in life. What we do, how we live, how we work, what we eat, spend our time, spend our money, what we desire, what we stop doing and start doing. It changes everything. And there's no need to even continue if we don't get that. When we believe the gospel, if it's truly believed, this world turns upside down. We turn from living this life for ourselves and start living this life for the glory of God and for the good of others. But the Christian life is hard. That's why he's writing to these people. Their life was hard. They were giving up things that used to bring them pleasure. Sex, food, alcohol, work, money. All of these things used to be their gods. But God says no more. I am your God now. And I don't want you to just stop worshiping those things because they are going to hurt you. Because I am so much better. I gave up everything I had so I could come down to earth, put on human flesh, and take the punishment that you deserve. But not only that, I'm going to return one day and bring you to myself so that every desire that you've ever had can finally be satisfied. When's the last time sex and money has done that for us? They haven't. Nothing has. Only God can do that. And he's done it. That's what redemption has started. That is what the Christian has to look forward to. That's supposed to be the fuel that we take in to live the way that God's calling us to do today. The gospel. Let's keep reading. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Other translations say, so that you can pray. So the first thing we see here that Peter says is part of living according to God's will, is part of being a disciple of Jesus 
is prayer. At its most basic level, we can stop there. Christians living in community and on mission, even while, or I would say especially when, suffering persecution should be praying. How are we doing at that? I think the power of prayer and I guess the importance of prayer is something that I'm still learning. My kind of progression of learning to pray as I grew up in the Roman Catholic faith and then to more of a charismatic type Protestant faith was reciting memorized prayers and maybe asking God for things that I wanted. Then it developed to being able to thank God for the things that he provided. And then it really got to praying to God that he would do something amazing pretty frequently like healing somebody or speaking audibly to me or giving me some sort of word of knowledge for another person. Now, I think there is some good in all of that. But I never really, just until just a few years ago, seen prayer as a gift, as a privilege. Right? Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and him giving us his righteousness, we now have access to the Father as he sits on his throne of grace. No one outside the family of God has that privilege. They don't have this type of access to the creator and sustainer of everything we know. They don't have it. Only Christians do. Are we entering that throne of grace? I also never really seen its connection to the word of God and how prayer really should just be a continued conversation with God. He speaks to us through his word and we speak back through our words being lifted up to him. If prayer is not rooted in scripture, then they are most likely going to be off. They are most likely going to be coming from our human desires and be about ourselves. This is why Pastor Justin mentioned last week that the early church that we've seen in Acts 2 devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers most likely meant the Psalms because the Psalms are God's words. So reciting these prayers would not only teach them to eventually pray in a similar way, but it would also set their mind on the God they are praying to which would lead them into prayer that was deep and tethered to reality. Pastor Timothy Keller in his book on prayer, which I highly recommend, says, without the immersion in God's words, we may be, res- we may be responding not to the real God, but to what we wish God in life to be like. We t- will tend to create a God that doesn't exist. This is why at our MC gathering, we have went to reading a call to worship and then even singing a hymn together before we move into our prayer time. The hope is to set our minds on the God who we are praying to and off of ourselves. This is what Peter means here by self-controlled and sober-minded. He's saying that it's vital to the life of the Christian to pray to their father, just like it is vital for a child in their relationship with their parents to be able to communicate to them So yes, it's good to just talk to God and even ask God for things. The Bible tells us to do that. But as we grow as a disciple of Jesus and we are remembering what we've already have in Jesus, we will start to take our minds off of ourselves and we will want, we will, and what we want and set it on God and the good of others. This is why our MC gatherings, we pray through gospel, starting with God and what he's done, community, moving to our brothers and sisters, in Christ, and then mission, ending with the people in our lives that God has called us to pursue for the kingdom. This call from Peter to pray is built into MC life for our good and God's glory. 
Let's keep reading in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I think if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard that love is important. The Bible says God is love. So we know that love is just like prayer, vital for the Christian life. But I think the tendency is for many of us to hear love and think about feelings. Right? We fall in love. We love music or sports or food. It's this emotion that we attach to things that give us pleasure. But that's not really what we should think of here as Peter calls us to love. Love includes feelings, but it's much more. To quote one of the commentators I read, love is a resolve to do good to others. It's an action. That's what Peter has in mind here, but he even gets more specific. He describes the type of love that is necessary for the Christian as an earnest love. Again, this is not speaking about the level of intensity of our love that we should have for people. Like when high school sweethearts ask each other, how much do you love me? Earnest means constantly or with persistence. Never stop, no matter what. I think that would probably be something good in our Bible to highlight. This means that no matter what your life circumstances are, remember, these people are being persecuted. It doesn't matter how much your brother or sister annoys you. It doesn't matter how much you're not being loved back. It doesn't matter how much you have been sinned against over and over and over again. Peter says, keep loving your community. That's what the one another means. He's not talking about unbelievers anymore. We will love them too if we are believing the gospel, but he's speaking to living life in community. So love your MC family. Love other Christians. This could mean many things, of course, but we don't have the time to get into that. But I think we can highlight one of them because the rest of the verse speaks to it. What we do when some what do we do when someone in our MC sins against us? This doesn't really apply to this church, right? We never sin against anyone in our MC? Well, Peter says here that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean that our love washes away their sins. Only the blood of Christ can do that. But what he's saying is if we are truly loving one another earnestly, then when even sin happens, which is going to, well, for living life in community, forgiveness and reconciliation should be the goal. And an earnest love is the fuel for that goal to be reached. So here are some things to think about that seem necessary if this is going to happen. Number one, are we actually living in community with other believers? If you're not, how does this scripture apply to you? It doesn't. In order to love one another in a way that covers sins, sinning against each other actually has to be happening. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone to sin on purpose just so we could follow this command. But we know it's going to happen with life on life, with people who are still living in the flesh that you are in relationship with. So if you are avoiding community or just have one foot in and one foot out, then you're probably not in anyone's life enough to be sinned against. That's a problem. I know that sounds really nice. Avoiding other people so that you don't have to experience being hurt or annoyed, or disappointed. But it's not living according to God's will, so it's not what's good for you. 
you are missing out on your growth as a Christian and missing out on discipling others God has put in your life. Number two, are you bold enough to let someone know when they sinned against you or someone else in the group? Again, if love is going to cover sins, then sin actually has to be brought out into the open. This is one of the two areas of growth that I was given as I was approved for eldership. Growing and saying the tough things to people, calling out sin. I've told you before in previous sermons, I want to be liked. I want to keep things cool. I don't like conflict. So even if someone sins against me or even worse, someone else in the group, it is my preference to avoid that confrontation of calling out that sin. But that's wicked. That's not from God. That's living out of fear and not out of faith. It's the opposite of loving my brother and sister in Christ. And if we are doing that, we are missing out on a joy that God has for us. Earnest love will call out sin. Number three, are you humble enough to actually repent when your sin is called out? I won't spend a lot of time on this because I believe Peter is really speaking to people who are on the receiving end of sins, but I think we all know that we need the spirit of God to remind us of who we are in Christ if we are going to get to the humility that is required to repent of our sin. But finally, number four, are you willing to forgive when you are sinned against? No matter how much it hurts, no matter how terrible a person's repentance was, and maybe even if the other person's heart is still hard, and doesn't desire reconciliation, can you still be persistent? Can you still earnestly love that person until their heart is softened? This is what we are called to here. On an ongoing basis, love one another with persistence. I want us to see that. If this is happening, then this is the life that we all really want. We were made for this to live in relationship with God and other people, but also to be naked and unashamed. Having relationships where we were deeply known by other people, but also loved and respected, loved and accepted. Facebook doesn't give us that. Having fans don't give us that. The culture is never going to give us that. And most friend relationships either never get there either. Only living in a Christian community who loves each other earnestly can even come close. The third exhortation we see is in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another. Stops right there, right? No, it doesn't stop right there. It says without grumbling. What's grumbling? Mackenzie asked me if I had a video to play or something to put on the slides. I was going to make a video of my kids every time we asked them to do something because you would have a perfect idea of what grumbling is. It's complaining, right? It's whining in a sense. It's any reaction that you have that's not cheerful. So he says, be hospitable and enjoy doing it. Now, some commentators believe that Peter was specifically speaking about teachers and preachers who would come to this area, come to their town for a short-term stay. Or maybe other Christians who were traveling through and staying in Asia Minor. He was asking these Christians to open up their homes to these men and their families and to not make them stay at some inn where they would have to pay for food and drink and miss out on being with other believers. But we can see here that he uses one another again. So this also applies to the whole Christian community. Hospitality to one another is about opening up our homes to each other. 
This is why for our MC gatherings, we actually meet in each other's homes. But this is not just a call to some Christians. It's for all of us. So have people over to your house. It doesn't have to be a huge party. But if you have the resources for that, maybe it can be. Have MC members over for dinner. Have some men over to play cards. Have the ladies over to do whatever ladies do. <laughs> I think our ladies are knitting this next Saturday. Is that right? Knitting? My MC grew in this area in 2017. Very thankful. Dudes nights, ladies Saturday mornings, hangouts, dinners with each other outside of Wednesdays, cookouts after the Sunday gathering. I'm very thankful for this. And something important I think we learned is everything doesn't have to be put together for hospitality to happen. Emily and I also grew in this in this last year. We had more people over in this last year than we've had in the past. We actually schedule it when we look at our month to see when can we have people over. And I think we were able to do that is because both of us got over caring so much about making everything look put together. Before we always had to have the house perfectly cleaned, Emily would have to make this extravagant meal, which typically would stress her out. But everything just had to be this big deal. And I think thinking like that doesn't have to be bad. Taking time to clean and make an awesome meal is very hospitable. But if it's such a big deal that it's keeping us from having people over to our house, or if it's bringing us to grumbling, then now there's a problem. But also sometimes the most hospitable thing to do is invite people into your home when your house isn't cleaned up, when you have no idea what's for dinner, when you maybe don't even have much food to choose from in the house. Why? Because that's actually what your house is like. It's reality. It's not a show. So this allows our brothers and sisters to really know us and really accept us. I pray Emily and I and the rest of our MC and the rest of us who are living life together can grow in this area. This can be a big sacrifice to make and can be a big change for you if you are far away from being hospitable currently. But again, Peter says it's part of living according to God's will, which means that the gospel can empower us to invite this into our lives. That brings us to our fourth and final exhortation in this passage. We see this in verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God or the very words of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I think the first important thing to see here is who gets gifts. Pastors? MC leaders? Super Christians? No, it's all Christians get gifts. That's a fact. Peter says, as each has received a gift. So if you belong to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have been giving a gift from Almighty God. Amen? If you don't know what your gift is or gifts are, spend some time praying, thinking about it. But this also is another benefit of living life with other believers. They might be able to see something in you that God has given you that you are not able to see yourself. Then we see that Peter, what Peter wants us to do with these gifts. We are to use these gifts, but not to serve ourselves or to serve no one, but to serve who? One another. 
If we are not, we are being poor stewards of God's grace, he says, which means that we are not utilizing what God has given us for his glory and for the good of others. So Peter is saying, don't be a hoarder of your gifts. Bring them out. When should we bring these gifts out? Whenever there is a need that your gifts can help meet. Which brings us back to me mentioning how the structure of Sacred City Church fits right into what Peter is saying in this text. On Sunday mornings, there are needs to be met. We need preachers, musicians, readers, children's workers, hospitality people, people to run sound, security. That's probably not even half of the things that we need for this service to happen. So more than likely, we have a need that can be met by the gift that God has given you. But this gathering is just a small piece of what we do. Living life together in community and on mission is the bigger piece. So the opportunities to serve one another are endless. That's why Peter says God's varied grace. He meets needs of all kinds through his children's gifts. But this speaks to something else that I think is important. In the last couple weeks that we've been meeting together at our MC gathering, We've talked about how everyone in our MC most likely would be willing to meet a need if there was a need in MC, but most of us aren't willing to let each other know that we are the ones in need. I think this is something that all of us can grow in. We have physical needs as well as an emotional, relational, spiritual needs. Are you able to share these needs with your MC? Can you share when you are overwhelmed? Can you share when your marriage isn't going very well? Can you share when you are struggling with fighting lust or bitterness? When your car breaks down, you don't have the money to fix it. It's folly to think that this stuff isn't happening with us. If we are keeping these things in, we are not only allowing pride to fester in our hearts, but we are also missing out on a form of grace that grace and love that God wants to provide to us. And we are depriving others in our MC of the opportunity to utilize their gifts for the glory of God. There are people in your MC right now that have the gift of listening, the gift to pray in a way that is encouraging to you, the gift of counseling, the gift of speaking a gospel truth that applies to your struggle the gift of being able to help you with time management or budgeting your money or cleaning your house or watching your kids, a.k.a. the gift of patience. Whatever you need, whatever need you have, God most likely has divinely given a gift to one of your brothers and sisters that can meet it. I want us to think about this. How attractive would that be to outsiders if this was happening? A community of people who are willing to share who they really are and what they really need instead of always trying to filter out our messiness and act like everything is great all the time because they know where their identity lies and they know that they have a God who has given them brothers and sisters who are willing to fill any need that they may have. Life would be so much less exhausting. Life would be so much more enjoyable. The call here is for us to use our gifts to serve one another, but also to share our needs with one another so that we can be served. The last important piece of this fourth exhortation is about what empowers us to use our gifts to serve one another. 
Peter gives two categories of gifts here. He talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, some believe that this was a specific reference to the two offices in the church, elders who lead the ministry of words and deacons who lead the ministry of deeds. But more than likely, because of the context of the rest of this passage and the, and the whole letter, Peter is again speaking to all believers, and these two get categories represent the whole of what these Christians were to do with their gifts. Paul says something similar in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. But it's what empowers these gifts that I want us to see, though. Peter says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. This is Peter's way of reminding Christians that they are to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and not their flesh when they serve. When you speak, whether it's preaching or teaching or even gospeling somebody in MC, don't do that with your own words. Do it with the words of God. When you are serving, whether that's playing the drums or watching the babies, cleaning up after an MC gathering, don't do it out of your own strength. Like it's something you've done a thousand times before. Do it with the strength that God supplies. So we all have gifts those gifts are to be used to serve one another, but they are to be used by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I close, we have to get to the why. Why do all of this? Why should we live according to God's will? Why should we live in community and on mission together? We hear just a few reasons. This way of living brings us joy. It's good for us. If this type of community is happening, it's the best way for us to live. It is also good for others. It's edifying for the church. So it's others, for, so others live well too if this community is happening. It also makes the gospel, God and his church attractive. So it's a piece to God's mission of bringing people to himself. But connected with all of those things is what Peter says here in verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This way of living should be done so that God, through Jesus Christ, would be glorified. This is what everything from eternity past has been about. Why did God create people? For his own glory. Why did he sustain people? for his own glory? Why did he redeem his people? For his own glory. Why did he come to live in his people as the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to live according to his will? For his own glory. Everything he does is for his own glory. Now, I've heard some people push back on these truths and say, that sounds like a selfish God. Why would I want to serve a God like that? Plenty of reasons. But I'll simply answer that by continuing with his story. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. We said that meant that all that's left in God's story is restoration or consummation of his kingdom. Where sin, death, evil are no more. Everything wrong is made right. We are no longer in this battle of fighting this difficult fight of not being able to live fully, to li live the right way fully. Every need we've ever had will finally be met and stay met for eternity. Everyone, 
no matter what they believe, would invite that type of world to come. But everyone is not going to experience that world. Only God's people will experience that world. So why is he going to do something that amazing for his people? For his own glory. We want God to be about his glory. We want God to be about accomplishing his will. We long for his story to be played out and are thankful that we get to be characters in it. But again, not just any characters, characters that are on the right side of it, characters that are on the happy side of it. Not because of anything that we have done or not done, but because of what Jesus has done. Peter ends the body of this letter with a doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please hear that. Please praise that with Peter this morning. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a member in God's family and desire to be on the right side of his story, then no longer are you here for your own glory. All glory be to God. No longer do you have dominion over your own life. Jesus has dominion over your life. I know we've maybe heard that before, but are we believing it? How we are doing at what we talked about today is a good way to evaluate how well you are actually believing that. Do that work. Actually reflect on how this is going in your life. Remember this. Our life is for God. It's about honoring him and bringing him glory through loving him and obeying his commands. Some of those commands we heard today. But if we were left to ourselves to be able to do that, we'd be doomed. Yes, we want to grow in every area that we talked about today, but if it actually was us living that way that merited us salvation and eternal life with God, we'd be doomed. What's amazing is it's not our obedience. It's not how great of a disciple we are that really matters. It's who we are a disciple of that really matters. It's Jesus that really matters. We can't live like him without the spirit that he sent. We can't live like him without the work that he's already done. He was the only one that did perfect community perfectly. Perfectly prayed, perfectly loved, perfectly showed hospitality, perfectly was a steward of God's gifts. He lived this life of perfection, gave us this amazing example to follow, but then willingly went to the cross for us, knowing that we were never going to follow him the way that we should. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves our worship. And if that's the case, if he is our king, if he is who we are worshiping, living the life that Peter's called us to will take care of itself. Let's pray. Jesus, may Peter's words and my words that were from you sink and settle deep into our hearts. If we really believe that the end of all things is at hand, if we really believed that the gospel was true and had the power that you say it does, it would radically change our lives. It would radically change the way we live and the way we love. So help us to remember that. Help us to remember the gospel this morning. Even as we come to the table this morning, help us to remember that that's why you came. 
That's why you gave your body. That's why you gave your blood. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in your ways, in community and on mission, centered on the gospel, for your glory, for the good of this church. In Christ's name, amen.